We're still in our series this week. We're going to be in it today and also next Sunday, and it's called God's People, A Biblical Response to Racism. And I want to begin with a question. Let me ask you this. For all of you drivers, especially you male drivers like me, have you ever been on the wrong road? Uh, Realize that after a while, even though you thought you knew where you were going, Uh, Maybe you were so sure of your destination that you ignored the GPS navigation. You said, oh, I know better than this. Or maybe, maybe you were on the right road, but instead of turning left, you turned right. Instead of going south, you were going north. And after a while, you realized, I'm going in the wrong direction, even though I'm on the right road, and I need to turn around. Many times in history, God's people found themselves on the wrong road, or they were on the right road, but they were going in the right direction. I think there's a great example of that. Um, Sometimes when it comes to the Old Testament people of God, the Israelites, uh, sometimes they became captive to other cultures, other values, other ideologies around them. Uh, Maybe they were doing good for a while, but then they did not tear down the high places of idolatry among them in their communities, and they found themselves falling on the wrong direction in life uh, in the future, And, and later generations had to repent and turn around to get back on the right road. There's a great example of that. It's in 2 Chronicles, and it's also in 2 Kings. A king of Israel, his name was Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat. I think you have to go to the Appalachian Mountains to find anybody today with the name of Jehoshaphat. Anyway, he was known in his day as a good king of Judah. He followed the ways of the Lord. He followed the ways of his ancestor, King David. Uh, But he made some mistakes. He found himself on the right road going in the wrong direction because Jehoshaphat formed a bond with an ungodly king of Israel, one of the worst kings of Israel in his day, Ahab. You remember who Ahab was married to? Jezebel. Oh, the Jezebel. That's mentioned in Revelation for having an idolatrous, anti-God spirit, a Jezebel spirit named after her. And what a wicked, evil woman. Uh, that she was. Well, he, Jehoshaphat formed a bond with Ahab, and that was a big mistake. Jehoshaphat also gave his son over to marriage with Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah. And when you read about her, she was nearly as bad as her mom. So there were some major mistakes going in the wrong direction. We don't want to be on the wrong direction in life, friends, especially when it comes to God's response to racism and on this road to reconciliation. We've been talking about reconciliation, that God himself is the author of our reconciliation, that God was in Christ, not counting our sins against us. He reconciled us to himself through Jesus, and then he says, now that you're reconciled to me, I'm going to put you on the road to reconcile the rest of the world to Christ. And eventually that's going to happen because in Revelation it says, the kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
So we don't want to be like Jehoshaphat on the wrong road. We want to be on the right road of life, friends. We want to remember Jesus' words. He is the road that we're supposed to be on. Remember what he said in John 14, 6, I am the way. Yo soy el camino. He is the path. He is the right road of life. The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What an audacious statement. But when you stop and think about it, who else gave his life on the cross to pay for all of our sins? The only way that you and I are going to be forgiven and reconciled to God is through Jesus and his awesome sacrifice for us. We love God because he first loved us. Let's talk about discipleship. What is discipleship? Discipleship is becoming a follower of Christ. Christ followers are made, we're made to follow Jesus, we're made to become like Jesus, and once we become more and more like Jesus, you and I, we will start doing the things that Jesus does. The Bible is an awesome book. If you ever think about the Bible, there's so many different ethnicities and people groups in the Bible. The Bible is the most multi-ethnic, diverse book in the whole world. I mean, you don't just have the Israelites. You start off in the book of Exodus, you have the Israelites being enslaved to the Egyptians, and God rescued them from the Egyptians, but then they ran into the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and finally the Romans. In Jesus' day, the dominant power in the world were the Romans. Many, many ethnicities, many, many people groups. Wait till we get to Acts chapter 2. Fifteen different regions and people groups are even are mentioned right there in the day of Pentecost. What is the definition of racism? Remember, we're, we're in this series. God's response to racism. We don't want to succumb to racism uh, anymore. We don't want to practice it. It is an ungodly practice. It is not like Jesus at all. Racism is the belief that there are certain groups of humans, because they differ in physical appearance or traits, maybe they have a certain skin color or eye color or physical build or hair color, uh, certain groups of humans, because they differ in physical appearance, they can be divided based on the superiority. Supposedly, one race says, guess what? We consider ourselves, our race, superior to the other races of the world. And that leads to all kinds of mayhem and catastrophe and death as people try to exert their superiority over other human beings based solely on appearance. I want to uh, bring our, our uh, bring you one story in the modern era of just one subtle sign of, ra of where racism is still around. It wasn't that long ago that the iPhone came out with a uh, program or software called facial recognition. Now, facial recognition is where, you know, they, they, the computer takes a, an image of somebody's face and they start matching up all these different points and lines on their face. And among white people, the facial recognition accuracy was 99%. Well, that's great for white people, facial recognition. It's great to be known that you really are who you are based on the accuracy of that. But what they found was among the black population, there was like a 40% error rate in the facial recognition. Somehow the programmers within Apple did not take into account very well that people that have a different skin color 
would have a different uh, difficulty level in their software for facial recognition. Uh, my skin color, T.G. Jakes was telling this story, and he says, my skin color was an asset for any move that I was educated to make. There's a professor uh, who wrote this story, who wrote, she actually wrote an article, and then she wrote a book called White Privilege. And this professor says, what is it like to be white in America? What are the advantages that we have that we're not even aware of, that we're not even consciously thinking about, but we enjoy these privileges anyway? He said there was, um, he said, white privilege is a pattern of assumptions that were passed on to me solely because I'm a white person. I didn't earn them, but they were conferred on me for being white. There was one uh, main set of assumptions. There was a piece of cultural turf in America here, and it was my turf. I was among those who were controlling the turf. My skin color became an asset for any move that I was educated to want to make. I could think of myself as belonging to major ways and of making social systems work for me. I could freely disparage or fear or neglect or be oblivious to anything outside the dominant culture forms. Being of the main culture, I could not criticize, I, I could criticize it, and I had the freedom to criticize it because I was already on the inside. It was white privilege for me, according to this professor, was an unearned entitlement, an unearned advantage that she had, that people of other races in America, at least historically for sure, have not enjoyed. The daughter of Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King, her name is Dr. Bernice King. In the October issue of Christianity Today, she has an article that's come out regarding race relations. She makes some very interesting comments. She says, amid a very public conversation about racism and equality in America, she says, we can see signs of progress, certainly since the death of her father. Now, this lady, uh, Bernice King, she was only five years old when her father was assassinated in 1968. So she's the same age as I am. Uh, in fact, I just looked her up on her, her bio. I'm 12 days older than, than Dr. Bernice King, which is kind of scary when you think about it. Um, she says, we can see signs of progress in America, especially looking at our, at our own history. But she says... As long as we, and I think when she refers to we, she's talking about the black community in America. She says, as long as we find ourselves continually angry and mourning over another black death, we are far from being able to call out these small uh, iterations of, prog of progress to freedom, which is a kind of a fancy way to say we're, we're, we've made progress, but we're certainly not there yet. And instead of focusing on one individual here and there, we need to focus on the systems in America that lead to the untimely, unwarranted uh, killing of, of, people of, of people of color. Jesus, let's go back to the, the ministry of reconciliation we've been talking about. Jesus is our road to reconciliation. All of us need to be reconciled to God. Because of that, God gives us a right relationship with himself through Jesus. Um, and so we're on the road to reconciliation with Jesus. Now, this is great. So when we're on the road to reconciliation, 
Then we have the task of making disciples, right? So this, this ministry of reconciliation, we follow Jesus, we show others how to follow Jesus, and we become more like him so that they can do what Jesus does. If we are doing what Jesus does in his life, then we're going to lead other people to follow him. We're going to train them up so they start doing also what Jesus does. That is genuine discipleship. That is success in the road of reconciliation. So friends, let's remember, let's go back to racism and how it affects reconciliation. Let's remember something about nations and cultures. Their differences, their unique expressions of these different cultures, they're part of this grand human mosaic that God wanted even from the beginning. You say, did God really want a, a mosaic of diversity in the human family even from the beginning? I think he did. And I want to show you from Genesis chapter 11. So let's go back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Origins, where something happened in Genesis 11. After the creation of mankind, Mankind was told by God, you remember in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, it says God blessed them after God created the first man and woman, and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And then God told them, he said, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God not only wanted them to multiply, he wanted them to spread out over the earth. And God knew that in spreading out over the earth and over the different environments, over the different heat and cold climates and the, the amount of humidity in the air and the uh, amount of daylight and sunshine, that, that it would affect the skin pigmentation of man. And some people would have lighter skin and darker skin, and they would develop this adaptation for their environment. God knew that it would create a variety among the humankind, and he was good with that. But what the first human beings did was they started uh, moving away from variety and they were moving toward a homogeneic humanity. In other words, just humanity of one kind. Look what they said in Genesis chapter 11. It, it does say in, that, in verse 1, it says, now, now mankind at that point, they only spoke one language and they were all together. And it says in Genesis 11, they said, now this is somewhere in Mesopotamia when the first mankind was, was beginning to multiply and spread out. And they said this, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Wow, can you feel the pride there? Can you see the arrogance? Uh, we we want to make a name for ourselves. We're going to build a city. We're not going to take these rocks and stones. We're going to make our own uh, material to build it with bricks and straw. And we're going to build cities and we're going to make a name for ourselves. And he says, otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So somehow those, that, that the, the first few generations of human beings, they refused to scatter over the face of the earth. They refused to spread out. They were joining together. And the human beings, they decided to refuse to migrate they refused to fill the earth with people in the image of God. Their, their goal was to make a name for themselves. So rather than diversify, these early humans, they wanted to cling to their homogeneity. They wanted to hang on and hold on to their sameness, right? One language, one common speech. 
Then they wanted to, to keep that. They didn't want to spread out. And so what did God do in reply to that, to their move? God consciously, I, or I believe this, God obviously did not want that to happen. So he says this um, in verse 7. He says, come, let us go down and confuse their language. So God is saying, well, I'm going to go down and I'm going to confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. And since different groups are going to be speaking different languages, they will separate because they won't understand each other. So who did the scattering? God. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth. They stopped building the city. That is why it's called Babel. Babel means confusion. Because the Lord confused their language and the language of the whole world, from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, I will tell you that having read this passage before, I thought I had an idea of what it meant. I really thought that God was perhaps being intimidated or threatened by these human beings when they get together and they're going to build a tower up to God and they're going to make a name for themselves. And he felt threatened by their human progress. And so that's why he scattered them. Some people think that the resulting diversity of languages and cultures, that that was some kind of a punishment from God instead of God fulfilling his original will. But I think something different. I think instead that God was keeping to his will for human beings and God decided to supernaturally, if they weren't going to obey his, his will, to say, fill the earth and subdue it, scatter yourselves over all the earth and subdue it and rule, then God says, if you're not going to do it voluntarily, I'm going to push you that way. God supernaturally sent them out into different language groups and cultures. Each one of them, each one of these cultures that would form could represent God's image uniquely through their own culture. These different cultures then could praise and worship God in unique ways. If you've ever gone to Christian churches and worship services in other parts of the world, you know that they have unique expressions for how they worship God. Some people stay very still and quiet. Some people dance. If you're at a worship service in Chile, you could be clapping your hands, standing and singing and praising and almost dancing for an hour straight before the person comes up who's supposed to speak. And there might even be more than one sermon in one service. They don't have, well, when we were there, they didn't have multiple services. They made that one service count. So, so you, you can tell, I'm sure if people go to Zimbabwe, where Kathy McCarty, our missionary is, uh, they will have an exuberant expression of praise and worship to God. So God loves that variety. He loves the diversity and yet the unity of praising God uniquely in everybody's own language. So uh, God still loved that because this is what God did. Fast forward thousands of years now from Genesis 11 all the way to the time 50 years after the resurrection of, 50 years, excuse me, 50 days only after the resurrection of Jesus, right? So Jesus has died. Uh, he's been buried. He's been raised from the dead. He spoke to his, his apostles uh, and their followers for a period of 40 days. Then Jesus went up on the Mount of Olives. He gave them final instructions. He said goodbye to them. And now we get to Acts chapter 2. Ten days later, in a prayer meeting, the Holy Spirit came down with tongues of fire. And look what the people said. 
Look, look how the people reacted to the miracle. It says, utterly amazed, they ask, aren't all of those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? This one, uh, Brenda Salter McNeil, who's the author of this awesome book called uh, The Roadmap to Reconciliation 2.0. She was giving a, a, a chapel speech at a Christian college, and she said, she said the people were saying, that sounds like my mama talking. That sounds like the voice of my mama. So they were doing that. They heard the voice and the praises of God in their own language, and then there's this whole list. I told you there's 15. You can count them all the way from Parthians to visitors from Rome who were converts to Judaism from all over the Roman Empire. And he says all these different languages, all different languages being spoken, all the people whose native language said we're hearing the, them declare the wonders of God in our own tongues. So it's like God reversed what he did. He spread them all out, and then he brought all these nations and people groups who were, who were Jews and coming there for the day of Pentecost for the festival, and he said, I want you to know who Jesus is. But instead of making them learn Hebrew, instead of saying, you have to learn Aramaic before you can uh, praise God with us, or you have to speak Greek or Latin, he says, no. God supernaturally says, I'm going to go to you. I'm going to build a bridge to you and declare the wonders of God and his praises in your own native language. Because God loves that unity in diversity. So now, you and I, we're joining Jesus on the road of reconciliation. That road of reconciliation has three parts. First, it's a road of restoration. Then it's a road of reconciliation. And finally, we're going to get to it. It is the road of revolution. So number one, this road as we follow Jesus, it is a road of restoration. That is where we are restored in our relationship with God. We're receiving his forgiveness. We're forgiving others who've sinned against us because God has forgiven us. And we begin to address the wrongs in our society. We, we begin to think, what is a, you, you think to yourself, what is a healthy, flourishing society look like? Well, there's equality. There's equality of opportunity. There, nobody is discriminating against anybody else. Nobody treats anybody else differently or better or worse simply because of the color of their skin. Like Martin Luther King said, they're, they're treating each other based on the content of their character. So there's the goal of human flourishing, and reconciliation is supposed to lead to that, and that road to reconciliation will always have to encounter these obstacles like injustice and discrimination and anger and protest and polarization and people that want to divide, people that want to turn us all into these little tribes and saying, you know, your tribe, just stick with your own people. Everybody else doesn't matter. Your own little group is the only one that matter. Look, there's two dimensions when it comes to reconciliation. This is me doing the best I can with the graphics. So please forgive me. It doesn't look so good. I'm going to get some help in the future. Um, I'll go to therapy or, you know, take a course. But anyway, uh, you can see the two dimensions of reconciliation. First, God reaches down and initiates reconciliation with us to himself. So we are vertically restored to a right relationship with God. 
And then God says, now that I've restored you to right relationship with me, I want you to restore right relationships between other human beings. You love God with all your heart. Now I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. So now we individually and collectively as God's people, we need to be reconciled to other people, perhaps other people that we've hurt or other people that have hurt us because God calls us to that ministry of reconciliation, of making peace, ending the hostility as God did with us when he, when he initiated that, right? So we're, we can't shy away from inequality and unfairness and bias in, in our society. When we see it, we need to address it because that is the road to human flourishing. That is the road to reconciliation. Number two, besides being a road of restoration, this is a road of reconciliation, right? That's what Jesus did in our lives. Our transformation then that he did in our lives, it has to reverberate in our communities and in our cities. Disciple, we become disciple-making, transformative uh, uh, revolutionaries in our society. As you stop and ponder this. You say, God, how am I going to do this? I, 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 obviously, I can't do it with your help, but with your Holy Spirit's help, how can you make me an agent, a, catalytic, a catalytic agent of reconciliation in my society? Lord, how do I know if I'm on the right road or not? How do I know? It's, asking that question is something we need to do frequently because it's a continual journey. It's a continual um, uh, improvement and, and editing of our own lives as we're growing in our relationship with God and Christ. He's the way we follow him. And then we say, Lord, where can I be a reconciler in the world that you've put me in, right? How can I know if I'm on the right road? There's, there's an example of somebody in the New Testament became one of the greatest leaders in the church but when we first meet him, he was definitely on the wrong road of life. He was going on the road in the wrong direction. When we first meet this man, he's holding the cloaks of the very Jews who were unbelieving in Christ as the Messiah, and they were picking up rocks and stoning the first Christian martyr to death. His name is Stephen. The man's name who was holding the clothes, his name was Saul of Tarsus. And Saul was certainly going down the wrong road of life. He was applauding those people who were killing Stephen, the first martyr. But then finally, Saul got back on the right road because Jesus went after Saul personally. And Saul met Jesus for real. He underwent blindness. I, I think... I think he underwent blindness for a few days so that Paul, Saul, who turned into Paul, he could get a new vision. He could get on the right road. He could get on the Jesus way, and he could join Jesus on the road of reconciliation, promoting the kingdom of God. In the Roman world, Christianity began as this movement, and they were a persecuted people. They were a minority. They were a marginalized people. They, the Christians were part of the Jewish community, and they would have been discriminated against. They had no status in Roman society. So they were the outcasts. They were the, on the outside looking in to the dominant culture of Rome. But over time, Christians began to grow in influence. And by the time of the 4th century, in the beginning of the 4th century, there was a Roman general whose name was Constantine. Constantine found himself 
getting ready for a battle over whoever won this battle would end up becoming the new emperor of the Roman Empire. And as on the eve of going into that battle, Constantine said that he looked up in the sky and he saw a vision. And he saw a vision of a cross. And that cross that he saw, he, he heard words to go with the vision. As he saw the symbol of the cross, it says, by this symbol, conquer. By this symbol, conquer. Constantine went on to fight the battle, to win the battle, became emperor of Rome. One of the first things he did was he issued an edict. I believe it was called the Edict of Milan. And it said that Christianity would no longer be an illegal, illicit religion. I, I believe the Latin term was Christianity became a religio licita which means it was now on the approved list for a religion that you could practice in the Roman Empire. And over the course of the next two generations, Christianity wasn't just an accepted religion now. Christianity became the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. By the year 381, Theodosius declared Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, what happened with that transformation wasn't necessarily good for the Christian faith because the, the kingdom of God was growing through love and through service. And even though they were marginalized and they were put down and many of them were thrown into the arena as martyrs, the Christians won over their culture through love and sacrifice and service. They were practicing all the fruits of the Spirit. In, they, so the symbol was the cross. The symbol was being willing to suffer for Jesus' sake to advance the kingdom of God. But now with religion, with Christianity becoming the dominant accepted religion of the Roman Empire, that cross symbol was replaced with the sword. Christianity instead of the cross became the symbol of the sword. And that's a hard way to make, to really make disciples. It's a hard way to make disciples with the sword. Why? Because you're trying to force yourself on people. You're trying to coerce them into becoming followers of Christ. And there are stories in the first uh, thousand years of the Christian church where the people were being forced, obligated, basically brought down to a river and said, we're going to baptize you now as Christians. If you accept it, great. If you don't accept it, we will kill you. And that's called conversion by the sword. And most of the time, that never works. It never really converts the heart of the individual. It just creates survivors who said, I'd rather not die today. So whatever you want me to do, I'll do, right? So the symbol of the cross was replaced with the symbol of the sword. Disciple-making is deeply, disciple-making is all about going back to the symbol of the cross and rejecting the sword. Jesus said to Peter as he was ready to fight in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, Peter, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. Violence is not the way to advance the kingdom of God. Service and love and sacrifice is the way to advance it. So disciple-making is connected to reconciliation. We're reconciled to God. We're, then we were to reconcile to each other. And once we start reconciling individual people, those individual people, as they gather together, form a society. And the broken, pagan, non-Christian systems that, that 
promoted discrimination, that promoted the superiority of one race over another or one society over the other, they had to start challenging those broken, uh, lost, fallen systems. So the church, we found this out with racial reconciliation. The church should not be the greatest expression of segregation in our society. The church should be the brightest expression of multi-ethnic, Christ-centered, beloved community. We should be the greatest expression of unity in diversity, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. That's one of the Latin phrases uh, of America's founding. I like the idea of unity in diversity even better because rather than being segregated on Sunday morning into our little tribes, into our races and homogeneic uh, groups, we could practice what Jesus had in mind for all people. Because when you get to Revelation at the end, it says, John looked out and he saw millions and millions of people from every tribe and language and people and tongue, and they were all praising God. They were saying salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. And it said they were from all languages and people groups, which means that there was a mosaic of the human culture all together praising God together. There was unity and there was diversity. And that's been God's goal all along. So let's have that practiced in our churches, yes? Where the church becomes the brightest expression of multi-ethnic, Christ-centered, beloved community. We're going to keep growing in our intercultural competence. We're going to uh, we're going to fight through this dynamic tension where there is a challenge because some people would say this. Some people saying, well, I, if you're telling me to, be to have unity and diversity, if you're telling me to be part of a multi-ethnic congregation, then I'm going to lose myself. I'm going to lose my own ethnicity. No, that's, I don't think God is saying that at all. I, say, I think God is telling each one of us, hold on to your own ethnic history, but also be committed to act cross-culturally and to participate in multi-ethnic communities without segregating yourself. The point is, celebrate your own cultural heritage and ethnicity, but don't use it as an excuse to hold off other people from being part of your life or being part of your church. Be willing to mix cross-culturally. Be willing to build bridges into other ethnicities. Welcome them into our church family. That's part of growing in our inner cultural competence. We hold on to our ethnicity, and we're committed to act cross-culturally into these multi-ethnic communities. Now, I understand that it's certainly not going to be easy <laughs> because... The, the three things I said about this road to reconciliation, it is a road of restoration, it is a road of reconciliation, and number three, it is also a road of revolution. Now, I looked up revolution in the dictionary early this morning, just because I said, I want to get this right. Because, you know, the Beatles say they got a song, revolution, you say you want a revolution, you know, well, you know, that's great, except what happens in a revolution. The problem with the world's revolutions is they generally are pretty violent, right? Revolution means that there's an overthrow of one government or a ruling class or something, and it's replaced by another group of people. And in that overthrow, there's usually violence. Well, we want a Jesus revolution, but we want what Martin Luther King dreamed of. We want a nonviolent Jesus revolution. 
Uh, we want them to say, it's not about me and my tribe and my ethnic group. It's all about Christ and his kingdom. And in order for that to accomplish, there's going to have to be in our own minds. Remember I talked about blind spots and mind bugs? We have to get rid of mind bugs and, uh, mind bu mind bugs and blind spots and replace them with the right theology. We have to replace them with the Jesus way. Now, the, the early disciples, this is, this is really interesting. This actually gives me hope when I read this story. Why? Because as misguided as I've been in my Christian walk, as uninformed as I've been in my Christian walk, uh, these guys who are in this story, they walked with Jesus every day for three years, and they still got it wrong. Right? So here is Jesus. He's in the last day before he ascends to heaven. They're up on the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem on the other side uh, of the city. And he, the disciples decide to ask Jesus this question. Then they gathered around him and they asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> Wow, I hope you could at least see that, that the, the disciples are still acting what I call ethnocentric. It's all about Israel. It's all about us Jews. It's all about the chosen people of God. It's all about God is doing with us. And when you say, God, I, we want you to restore the kingdom of Israel, it means political. It means, it means military revolution. It means kicking out the Romans as the dominant culture and the people and replacing them with God's people. And now we're on the throne. We're not going to be dominated anymore. We're going to dominate. Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel at this time? Wow. And Jesus, I think at some point before he answered them, looked up and said, Father, how much further do we still have to go with these people? First, it's not the time that God is using. Jesus is saying this. It's not the time that God is using right now to come in judgment on the nations and establish a political earthly reign for Israel. Jesus says it's not the time at all. Israelites, Peter, James, John, Matthew, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, and the rest of you guys. It's not about God wanting to judge the nations right now. Guys, God is wanting to save the nations right now. And he's beginning with you. But he'll never get to the nations unless you take off that lens that's covering your eyes, the scales that are over your eyes saying it's all about me and my tribe. It's all about me and my people group. It's all about me and my ethnicity. We're the only ones who matter. No, every ethnicity matters to God. Every people group matters to God. Jesus wants to save the nations by serving them the good news of Jesus Christ. And when he does that, there's going to be a great mosaic of millions and millions and millions of God's people from unique cultures all over the world. And in this wonderful, colorful tapestry, they'll all be together in heaven praising God. So Jesus replied to them and he said, okay, guys, it's not, this is not the time. It's not for you to know the times that, or dates that the Father has sent for that. All of that that you're hoping for now, Jesus says, I'm going to do that when I come again, but right now I have work for you to do, and you can't do it on your own. You'll never get this done on your own. You have to be empowered. I told you about the Holy Spirit back in the upper room 
Many times he's the helper. He's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to take that which is mine and he's going, to, he's going to deliver it to you. You're going to know what to do and what to say as you follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And that's great. But that, again, Jerusalem is filled with Jewish people. This is my own ethnic group, my own tribe, cultural group. That they don't yet believe in Jesus, but they're going to be a lot easier to reach, and I don't have to cross too many cultural bridges to reach them, but oh, what about this next level of people, all of Judea and Samaria, like the parable of the Good Samaritan we talked about last week, uh, people that are from a different ethnic tribe who don't look like us, don't believe like what we believe, eat different food than we eat. And, and Lord, you want me to, to adjust to all that and accept them and build bridges to them with the gospel? And Jesus says, yep, that's what I want you to do. And after you finish with Samaria, I want you to go to the ends of the earth. And as, as people are as far from God as they could possibly be, I want you to be the ministers of reconciliation. I want you to build the bridges to reach those people. It says, apostles, this is much larger than your idea of, quote, an Israel empire. I'm grafting all the Gentiles. You don't, you hate the Gentiles, but I love them and I want you to love them. And when you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, you're going to love them too. And you're going to build bridges to, so eventually through the gospel, the Gentiles, all these ethnic groups, they're going to be grafted into the kingdom of God. And we're going to look at all the ethnics together and we're going to celebrate God's unity in diversity. Friends, that idea is revolutionary. Following Jesus on this road is revolutionary. And that's what he wants from us. Slide number 27. Remember this. You and I find out that our identity is, is anchored in a relationship with Jesus. We are members of the kingdom of God. Being a member of the kingdom of God, and this is for Americans living in America. I've seen a lot of American flags out lately. I've seen a lot of political signs out lately because we have a national election coming soon. But the, belonging to the kingdom of God is our highest authority, and that is our highest loyalty as followers of Jesus. Following Jesus and his kingdom transcends any national or political identity. Following Jesus is bigger than any political party. I just want you to remember that as you're going into this. The kingdom of God is forcefully advancing and violent men oppose it. But the kingdom of God matters more because heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will never pass away, Jesus said. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He said that 2,000 years ago. That promise does not have an expiration date. So we're building something that lasts forever, the kingdom of God. And it's bigger than any national platform. It's bigger than any one political party. Amen? Amen. What is discipleship? <laughs> well, I said at the beginning of this message that the road to reconciliation is being in right relationship with God. That road continues by reconciling and having genuine relationship with other people who could be outside of our comfort zone, outside of our ethnicity. We have to be willing to be friends with, to relate to, to worship with, to disciple 
to live life together with people that don't look like you. Some of them don't talk like you. Some of them, when you look at them, they make you nervous. They make you tense for you to be around them. Uh, some of these people uh, will be more comfortable than others for you to be around, and that's okay. Following Jesus on this road of reconciliation, we have to learn to get past our fears. We have to learn to, to recognize our blind spots and our mind bugs. We have to see people differently than what we saw them before. We need, as we grow in our relationship with Christ, He gives us new vision, new insight, new ways of seeing our world and seeing other people. We're transformed into the image of Christ so that we start doing what Jesus would do if he were living in your shoes and in my shoes. And when we do that, we're going to make true what happened in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9 where it says, every, there were people from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, Together in that great mosaic, they were all crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, that's unity and diversity. And we don't have to wait for the far future to get to heaven to experience that. We can have unity in diversity now if we're willing to follow Jesus faithfully on the road of reconciliation. It's a road of restoration it's a road of reconciliation, and it is a road of revolution. We start thinking in a whole new way. We start reaching out in a whole new way, and we see people coming and being swept in to the family of God because of Jesus and because you and I were willing to build bridges to them and getting out of our comfort zones to do so. Are you ready to do that? Friends, I don't know if you're hearing a message like this and you're saying, wow, this Christian faith, it sounds pretty revolutionary. It's being part of God's family. It's being part of the kingdom of God. You remember Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He wants you in his kingdom family. He sent Jesus to make a way for you to be in his family. Jesus gave his life to pay for your sins on the cross. He didn't stay dead. He came up out of that tomb alive forevermore. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the alpha and the omega. And he says, I will give you forgiveness and eternal life if you put your trust in me. Are you ready to do that today? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today, I want to give my life to you. I want to become your follower. I, I love this idea of how you're reconciling the entire world to yourself because of what you did on the cross. And Lord, I want to be part of that kingdom. Lord, please forgive me of my sins. I invite you into my life. I declare that I'm, I will be your follower from today until the end of all my days. I'm giving you the reins to have leadership over my life. Lord, show me the next steps that you want me to do, how you want me to live in order for me to keep growing as, as a follower of you and as you turn me into that bridge-building, disciple-making, servant minister of reconciliation. Lord, do that in my life. Lord, help us all to become better 
ministers of reconciliation. Help us to remember that our model, that the author and the perfecter of our faith, the one who shows us the way, because Lord Jesus, you are the way, is you. Help us to follow you more nearly and dearly as we continue our days. Thank you for hearing our prayers, Lord. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.